0: Hello, hello guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Hero Academy. In this episode, this man will inspire you, I promise. If you think that the only thing that you can do is your current career, whether that's a nurse, fireman, police officer, EMS, paramedic, you know, full-time military, you will not think that after this episode. In this episode, I have Matt Dix. He has written uh, more than six books. He is an author, columnist. He's a blogger. He's a podcaster. uh, He's a playwright and an elementary school teacher, which he works his full-time job. He's won 45 Moth Story Slams. So that's where you go on stage and you tell stories. He is a professional speaker. He is a coach. He speaks at corporations He is a filmmaker and a writer. And did I mention that he is a prolific writer? He writes every single day. In his spare time, he's also a wedding DJ, minister, and a life coach. So this man has a wealth of experience. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I am here with uh, Matthew Dix. You prefer Matt or Matthew? You can can call me
1: Matt. You can call me Matt. Matt. Yeah, I like Matt.
0: Who calls you Maddie? Only one person in the world?
1: No, a bunch of people call me Maddie. Actually, I I grew up with Maddie. Sort of post high school, they called me Maddie. A bunch of my buddies, and uh, it's stuck with a bunch of people. So you know, some people at work weirdly call me Maddie, and they're like, "Why do you call him Maddie?" And it's just because they've known me long enough and they've heard Mm -hmm. like one of my buddies call me Maddie. So.
0: I have uh, two people in my life that still call me Davy. <laughs> yeah,
1: I picked up Maddie later in life, though. You know, I wasn't called Maddie until I was like nineteen. Okay. So yeah, it's a later in life nickname. My DJ nickname is Maddie too. We're always Maddie and Benji. So any DJ client that I've dealt with has always called me Maddie.
0: All right, all right. For those that don't know you, can you tell a quick three to five minute story of your life?
1: All oh, right. Yes. Sure. Well. I grew up in Blackstone, Massachusetts, which was a tiny farm town, sort of in Eastern Mass, about an hour from Boston. I grew up poor and uh, in a broken family. And when I was 18, I got kicked out of my house by my stepfather. I graduated high school and basically, all right, have a good time. You're on your own now. So I moved in to a a house we called the Heavy Metal Playhouse with my buddy Benji and another guy who we eventually got rid of because he was messy and didn't pay the rent. And I lived there for three years. It was great. And that ended um, less great. I ended up getting arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit. I was managing McDonald's restaurants at the time. So I got arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit. I ended up homeless. Uh, I eventually got taken in by a, a family of Jehovah Witnesses who used to work for me. I shared a room off their kitchen with a guy named Rick who spoke in tongues in his sleep and Mary and Jerry's indoor pet goat. It was the goat's room before Rick and I ever came along, so it was technically sharing its room with us. And so I lived there for more than a year, waiting for my trial, working two full-time jobs to try to pay a legal fee. I eventually went to trial. I was found not guilty, thankfully. And then I uh, moved to Connecticut, where my buddy uh, Benji had moved to. He uh, introduced me to a girl that brought me to Connecticut. I eventually got to college on my own. I started college when I was 24. 24. I finally made it to community college for a couple of years. Uh, I did really well in community college, got a full scholarship to um, Trinity College. I began an English degree at the same time. I began a full-time program at St. Joseph's University, which was an all-women's college. And so I was going to two colleges simultaneously, getting an education degree and English degree. My we goal have St.
0: Is- Joseph's over here. It's probably the same college, and it was 90% women mostly becoming teachers. And I went for about two semesters.
1: Yeah. Yeah. St. Joseph's here now is co-ed, but when I went to it, it was all women's. I get to go through like a weird loophole. Trinity College and St. Joseph's had a consortium deal where if you couldn't get a class at Trinity that you wanted, you could go to these four other schools. And one of them happened to be St. Joe's. So typically guys wouldn't choose to go to that school. They would pick another one because they knew it was an all women's college, but that was the place where I could get an education degree. And so usually a Trinity College student might take one or two classes at most over the course of their entire career at Trinity through this consortium. And I just sort of exploited the loophole and did a full degree program at the same time, which was challenging. But after you're homeless and sort of in jail, everything will always seem easier than that so
0: you weren't distracted by being around women all the time at 19 20 years old
1: no no i wasn't 1920 remember at 1920 i'm like living on my own in the heavy metal playhouse managing mcdonald's restaurants and being poor and you know eating macaroni i actually went to the library and looked up scurvy at one point because i realized it had been so long since i could afford fruits and vegetables that i was worried that i might get scurvy because we were only eating pasta So I was like 25 to 29 when I was doing that, which is a little more mature. Yeah, I was a little more mature. And I had a girlfriend at the time and things like that. So no, no, I was there to do work, you know, really honestly. And I kept my mouth shut because it turns out when you're in a class with all women and they're there because they wanted to be in an all women's school and suddenly a guy sitting in the room, you realize like, keep your hand down, be the last person to speak, become a good listener, all that stuff. So I graduated and I became a teacher. I became an elementary school teacher. I've been teaching in the same school, in the same classroom, just about for the last 22 years now. I began writing novels about that time, right after I graduated from college. They didn't publish for a long time. I published my first novel in 2009, and I have published six cents plus a book of nonfiction on storytelling. Uh, I launched a DJ company with that guy, Benji, from the Heavy Metal Playhouse, so we We've been doing that for about 20 years. We do weddings. We're sort of winding it down now a little bit. And uh, back in 2011, on a dare, I went to New York and told a story at The Moth, the big granddaddy of all storytelling shows in the world. And I fell in love with storytelling. I won my first slam. I like winning. I like scores. I like judges. I like to know where I stand. And so I started telling stories in New York and then later in Boston and then around the world. My wife and I launched a company called Speak Up in 2011, where we began producing shows here in the Connecticut area. I began teaching storytelling, first grudgingly, and then I sort of fell in love with that too. So now I teach storytelling and consult on marketing and advertising and communication with companies all around the world while still teaching elementary school and DJing weddings. And I've got a wife and two kids and two cats, and I like to play golf poorly. I like to play poker well and uh that's about it there's other things but that's that's enough so i
0: love poker too but i found you guys because i looked up storytelling in podcasting and uh speak up storytelling came up i started listening and then i said oh they're right in connecticut i'm in long island i'm gonna go check these guys out and uh i went to a storytelling workshop it was awesome And, uh, you know, I can't give you enough praise, but I don't want to spend the whole 30 minutes, 45 minutes giving you praise. (laughs) I don't want you to do that either. No, I'm I'm good. (laughs) Uh, What's the thing that you're most passionate about? Would you say teaching? Teaching in general? Uh, No. Or is it
1: writing? You know what I tell people is I'm passionate about words. Because if you look at all the things I do, it all is wrapped around words. Whether I'm putting words on a page, whether I'm speaking them from a stage, whether I'm teaching people how to organize their words in a way that affects their communication better. I'm, I'm just mostly interested in language uh, in whatever form it takes. So, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm thrilled to be writing. And when I'm able to take a stage, when we're past this pandemic, I'm thrilled to be on a stage. And when I'm able to help, I don't know, someone at a tech company market their product better by delivering a better presentation, that oddly is just as exciting for me. So It's words in every form that I love the most.
0: Crafting, crafting words and crafting stories. With storytelling, what's harder than people think it is and what's
1: easier than people think it is? Well, the easier part, I'll start first, is just that people don't think they have stories. And that's just nonsense. You know, the problem is people see stories as crazy, large and, you know, insane types of things that happen in their lives. They often think stories have to be, I did something when the best stories tend to be actually pretty quiet. You know, most of the stories that I tell, if you were watching me as the real important moment happened, you wouldn't even know I'm having a moment because everything happens sort of in our head. A story is about realization or transformation, you know, change. And oftentimes it's, you just suddenly see or think about the world in a new way. And it doesn't usually happen while you're bungee jumping or you know, while you're getting in a car wreck or, I don't know, winning a baseball game. None of these things are actually the moments when these things happen. They they just happen between our ears. So the easy thing is I can help people find stories in their lives very quickly and very easily. And it turns out that people have lots and lots and lots of stories to tell. That's a beautiful thing. The hard thing, I guess, is that To tell a story, at least if you're going to tell it sort of in a public way, you know, stand on a stage or present in a meeting or speak at a conference. The tricky thing is, you know, people tell me they're nervous, like standing in front of an audience is going to make them nervous. And they always want this magic pill. They say, like, well, how can I not be nervous? And I always say, well, you just have to go be nervous and do it. And then the next time you'll be less nervous. Like I always say the difference between you and someone who's doing it is they've just chosen to be brave and you've chosen to remain a coward. (laughs) That's kind of how it is. Like in life, there's lots of things that frighten us and there's no cure for that fear other than to actually go do the thing and discover that it won't kill you. It won't ruin you, that it won't be as bad as you think it is. And so they really do. People want this magic pill, This How can I not be nervous? And I say, everyone's nervous. Like, you're not special. People think they walk around and that they're different than other people because they're nervous about having to speak in public. No, almost everyone is nervous. Now, I am not, admittedly, but I have arrogance, narcissism, and stupidity. weave a blanket that protects me from being nervous. But I can't think of a person who I have performed with. Really top-notch storytelling talent. I was once at a show with Louis C.K., And he was getting ready just to accept an award and deliver a little speech. I was standing next to him. He was nervous. Like, people are just nervous. So you're not special if you're nervous. You're just a normal person who just hasn't found the courage to do something that's hard.
0: I've heard top speakers and top comedians say that they've always had the butterflies before any performance, but they've learned to manage it. Yeah. You know? The other thing I heard a TED talk last night, the guy was talking about building self confidence in the terms of reps. And like I equate everything to uh, working out and doing like, you know, push ups or anything. Like if you want to get better at pull ups, you have to do more pull ups, you have right. to do more reps. If you want to get better at speaking, you have to speak more.
1: Yes, I agree. You know, when people say, How can I become a better crafter of stories? I say, Well, start crafting stories, you know, and For me, I'm always working on a story and, you know, I sort of confine that time to certain parts of my day. I work orally, so that's nice. So like when I'm driving, I'm working on a story. When I'm taking a shower, I'm working on a story. But right now in COVID, I don't have a lot of stages to stand on. Even digital stages are sort of, they're sad and difficult and I don't enjoy them that much. So I'm not like throwing myself into the virtual world, but I have a ton of stories I've never told. I'm just constantly crafting them where I know a lot of people who don't work on a story until they have a place to tell it. So I Mm -hmm. say, well, you're not really working on the craft. That would be essentially like if you're doing pull-ups only when you need to fight, you know, only when you need to lift a couch, that doesn't make any sense. You're doing pull-ups so that you're ready for the moment. You got to lift the couch or punch the guy in the face. Same thing with storytelling. You're just crafting stories for the moment when you have to tell a story, whether it's on the stage or I'm going to play golf with my buddies and something happens at the McDonald's while I'm buying my Egg McMuffin and I want to tell them about it when I get to the golf course. If I'm crafting stories all the time, that story is just going to come out better, even if it just happened five minutes ago. So that's why we do it.
0: You have a very unique way of telling people how to save their stories. I don't want to steal your thunder. It's called Homework for Life. Can you you just tell uh, my audience about
1: that? Sure. So, you know, it was born from the idea that I needed to find more stories so I could tell more stories. There's a lot of storytellers in the world who have like 12 chestnuts. You know, they roll out the same 12 stories every time. And I didn't want to be one of those people. Every time I took the stage, I wanted a brand new story. So I gave myself this homework assignment years ago. At the end of every day, and now truthfully in the midst of the day, I'm constantly asking myself. What is the most story-worthy moment in my day? Essentially, the question is, if someone kidnapped my family and they said, we won't give them back to you until you get on the stage and tell a story about something that happened today, even if it's a day where really nothing happened, I still have to pick the thing that I would tell a story about, even if I knew the story was going to be boring and terrible. And then what I do is I search my day to find that moment and I write it down, not the whole story, because that's crazy. That's a journaler, right? Those are people who are really good at journaling when someone dumps them. But as soon as they find love again, the journal slides its way back into the drawer because nobody cares about journaling when they're happy. So instead of doing stuff like that, I want it to be short and simple, like brushing your teeth. So I just use an Excel spreadsheet. It's two columns. The first column is the date. And then I stretch that B column across the screen. And in the B column, I write what the moment was. So I don't give myself a lot of room to do it. That way, it's not a writing exercise; it's just a capturing of ideas exercise.
0: I call it micro blogging. Did I learn that from you, or did? Uh, or you didn't did get it I from me. That All right, so yeah. I picked that up from someone else, but um, that's what I call it. I call it micro blogging, micro stories. And um, as soon as I heard the idea, I was like, "Oh, that's from Matt Dix. That's like Matt Dix." <laughs> I take the same concept with jokes. I try and have a like if I hear something funny or if I think of something funny, I try to do a little micro joke, a micro blog, and keep a little file. I use Evernote. Uh, you said you use you use your laptop.
1: Yeah, I use Excel, but you know I use Evernote throughout the day. So if I have a, a moment during the day, you know my son did something this morning, and I immediately wrote it down, even though it's not the end of my day. Uh, I forget what he said, but see that's the point of writing it down. Oh, you know what he did? Uh, he was in the bathroom. And the washing machine was going and it was shaking the whole bathroom. And uh he came out, he goes, Was there an earthquake? And I said, No, it's a washing machine shaking the bathroom. I said, Were you still able to poop? And he goes, Luckily, I was still able to poop. Right now, <laughs> there might not be that's probably not gonna be us, that's not a story, right? Right, but it might be a moment in a story, but even if it's not a moment in a story, it's funny, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. I never wanna lose it because it's my kid, and I do stand up. So I want to grab funny things that my kids say because they easily can work their way into jokes about my kids. So whether it's someone says something to me that's funny or someone says something to me that makes me look at the world in a different way or, you know, I experience something that is meaningful. What happens is if you do this over time, you discover that your life is full of stories. You won't see it initially. You'll be looking for the big things. That's what I used to do. I used to look for like, what happened? And now I just sort of see like, oh... I just thought about things a little differently there, or someone said something to me and it made me feel something. And that becomes my homework for life. And now every day has oftentimes more than one moment. So today I've already gotten a Charlie moment where he said something funny to me. I'm sure something else is going to happen over the course of the day. That's going to be enough for me to write it down. And many of those things become stories. So now I have more stories than I'll ever have time to tell, thankfully.
0: So when I hear the name Charlie, I think of two things. I think Charlie bit my finger.
1: (laughs) Do you know that video? (laughs) I do know that video, yes. Okay, good.
0: Some people don't actually know that video because it's so old. It's one of the original viral videos. Yeah, it is. And then uh, the other thing I think of is Charlie Murphy. Who's
1: Charlie? I don't know Charlie Murphy. (laughs)
0: Charlie Murphy is Eddie Murphy's brother.
1: Oh, I heard him talking about it. Yeah, I heard yeah. him talking about his brother on a podcast yeah. recently. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he was, uh, he actually died, but he was on the Dave Chappelle show and he was extremely funny the way he told stories. Yeah. Yeah. He told true Hollywood stories because he was Eddie Murphy's bodyguard. Right. In his heyday.
1: Yep. Yeah. I was listening to Murphy on maybe Mark Maron's podcast and he was talking a little bit about him. Yeah.
0: So um, my audience is firemen paramedics police officers and nurses frontline workers you know uh, people that society call heroes but if um somebody wanted to tell their story i know you suggest not to tell their life story you suggest to tell a moment right how does someone tell their story without turning other people off without saying look at this great thing i did because i actually I know that I've saved a couple lives. I know that I've saved the family from getting destroyed, you know, on the road before. Yep. So, um, but how do you tell your story without saying, look how awesome I am. And that, you know, without turning off the
1: crowd. Right. Well, that's good that you're asking the question. Cause then you get that. You understand that. Your mother wants to hear how you saved the family, but like a lot of other people, don't want to hear it. You know, it's not the kind of story people are drawn to. Paramedics have saved my life twice. Twice they've used CPR on me and brought me back to life when I was not breathing and my heart wasn't beating. So I respect and admire and you tell appreciate. their
0: story. You tell their story, but how does that paramedic tell the story of the guy right. who who he saved?
1: Yeah. So what you have to do is in circumstances like that, let's say you're a I know paramedic. it's tricky. No, I know well, it's tricky. It is. If you're telling a story about saving someone's life as a paramedic, for example, we don't really want the story only to be about you saving the life. What we really want to hear is this thing happened to me and it changed me in some fundamental way. So by saving the life of a person, either you know during the saving of the life or after the saving of the life or the talking to the family later on or something like that, we want to hear the story about how that changed you as a person. So rather than it being a story about, I did this amazing thing. It is, I did this amazing thing. And as a result, I now see the world, view the world, think of the world a little differently, or see myself, think of myself a little differently. And it doesn't actually have to be a positive thing either. You know, it could easily be a story of how I saved this guy's life. And, you know, 90 of his family members came to the hospital and they all supported him. And it occurred to me that my family would never do that for me right mm. that might be like your realization which is a sad version of that story but what you want to do is to aim the story at a way that you have changed as a result of the thing that took place as opposed to the story about what took place you know does this-
0: every story need some kind of transformation
1: if you want the story to stick with people and you want them to sort of love it and remember it yes and and you just think about it every movie is like this too every movie every book Every story that means something to people, there is a change that takes place over time. There are other stories where it doesn't happen, like, you know, we call them a romp, a drinking story, you know, those Mm. stories that you just tell, like, here's a crazy thing that happened to me that makes everybody laugh. And they're fine, but they're not the stories that people remember 10 years ago. They're not the stories that caused people to reflect back on their own life. You know, I'm always told secrets by everyone. Like, I step off the stage after telling a story of vulnerability that, demonstrates change in my life. And a stranger I've never met before comes up and tells me the craziest secret about themselves. That doesn't happen if you're telling a story just about a crazy thing that happened in your life or a hilarious thing that happened in your life. You know, I once hit a bird while playing golf midair. Like I, I knocked the bird right out of the air. It was crazy that that happened, you know, and whenever we're on that hole with somebody new You know, my friends usually, or I will bring up that this is the hole where Matt killed the bird in midair because I'm a terrible golfer. So it makes sense. I would hit the bird, you know, but that's not going to make anyone come up and tell me their secret. You know, that's just a crazy thing that happened to me. Nothing wrong with telling it, but you can't expect to get far with it. It's just going to get you a laugh. It's not going to get you anything else.
0: Okay. All right. You also taught me about teaching, uh, speaking and telling stories and scenes, yeah. It seems the same thing as a three act structure.
1: No, no. Um, so can uh, you talk about both? Yeah. Well, I want you to just get rid of three act structure. Just make that go away out of your head. It's just nonsense. I, you know, people say, you know, what's a story. Well, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. Like if that's actually the definition of a story, that is how I eat a Snickers bar. I eat the beginning and then I eat middle and then I eat the end. So is a Snickers uh-huh. bar a story. Like no kidding that it has a beginning, middle and end. As soon as you speak, That's always going to be the beginning, and when you're done, that's always going to be the end, and there's going to be some stuff in the middle. It doesn't mean you told a story. It doesn't mean you did anything. Everything is a beginning, middle, and end. It's a nonsense concept, and so is the three-act structure. We're not writing plays here. We're telling stories. But what about the hook?
0: The hook as the first uh,
1: Well. You want your beginning to be engaging. You want your beginning to grab the audience's attention, but that doesn't mean you need a three-act structure, right? When I say we tell stories in scenes, what it means is I believe that fundamentally the best storytellers create movies in the minds of their audience. They activate that third eye, right? And almost sort of close the other two. In the best versions of stories, you kind of forget where you are. You forget who you are. Instead, you sort of get lost in your mind with the story that's being created by the storyteller. And in order to do that, your audience needs to be able to imagine things at all times. You need to activate their imagination. And the best way, really the most effective and the only way you can do it is to give them a scene, which is to say, tell them where you are, tell them the actual physical location you are, because physical locations activate so much of your imagination. If I say to you, you know, I'm standing, I'm standing
0: in the shower right. and the water is hitting my forehead and I'm suddenly remembering
1: blank. Right. Now, I can already see that. I see it perfectly, right? Now, I happen to be imagining, in this case, my own shower, right? It's not what your shower looks like, but who cares, right? Unless the actual physicality of your shower matters to the story, don't bring it up. Just allow me to create this perfectly envisioned shower stall, right? That I stand in every single day with all the details. So when people say to me, like, your stories are so vivid, how do you make them so? you know, clear in my mind, I say, I don't use any adjectives or I try to use as few as possible. I just use a good hard noun, like, like shower, you know, I'm standing in a shower, the water's pouring over my head and I'm imagining something. You can see it perfectly. You know, I'm in my kitchen and I'm cooking eggs. That's all I would say. I don't have to tell you where the refrigerator is relationship to the stove. I don't have to tell you whether it's wood or linoleum, what type of cooktop you have, right? None of that, unless it matters to the story and it almost never does. So, We tell stories and scenes in the same way they do movies, which is they go on to location and then they put the actors on that location and they film. Same thing in telling a story. You must put yourself on location. Where are you? Tell us where you are, because that's the first way to get the movie playing. So many people don't do this, though. They start stories with things like uh, there's three kinds of people in the world. There are people who tell the truth and people who tell lies and people who stand in the middle. Right. That's not a story. That's an essay on what you think is true about people when it comes to honesty, right? That's not a story. You might eventually get a story going, but why did you say those words in the beginning that mean nothing to us and will be forgotten by the end of your story? You know, we need to tell our stories and scenes and give people physical locations.
0: Who surprised you with great advice?
1: (laughs) That is a tricky question for me, I have to say. I grew up sort of without much parenting and, you know, even after high school, I grew up with a lot of isolation. I, I grew up on my own. This is gonna sound crazy. Here's the best advice I ever got. I was trying to decide when I was in college if I should become the honor society's president. I was already the treasurer of the student council, and I was already managing a McDonald's restaurant full time, and I was already writing columns for the school newspaper. And my professor, Pat Sullivan, came to me and said, I'd like you to be the president of the Honor Society. And I thought, man, I am doing so much already. Do I really need this on my plate? And so I said to myself, I wish I had a parent who I could ask for advice. So I told Pat, give me a day and I'll think about it. And I went home and I just I was really sad that I didn't have a parent to get advice from. And so I said to myself, if I had a parent, what would that parent say to me? And honestly, right away, the voice of someone, not really my father, because I don't know him that well, but a voice came to me and said, great people always make time, right? People who don't accomplish things always complain about not being able to find time and great people make time. And I decided I'm going to make time for this. I'll go make time and become the president of the Honor Society. So I went back the next day and I told Pat, I said, I asked my father what I should do. And he told me I should make time to do things rather than waiting to find time. And Pat actually said, that's great. That's great advice. And like six months later, when Pat was giving a talk and congratulating me on an accomplishment in a little speech, he said, one of the most interesting and important thing Matt uh, chose to do recently was ask his father for advice. And I think that was a great decision on his part. And I was sitting there thinking, I didn't ask my father for advice. (laughs) I asked myself for advice. And that was the advice I got. But because I was sort of so ashamed that I had no one to turn to for advice, I turned to myself. So I often tell people the best advice I got, which is really good advice. I think that if you want to actually live an interesting life, you have to make time. You can't wait to find time. But it was advice that sort of came to me from the ether while wishing I had a parent to give me advice.
0: Uh, I story. believe, I believe in the ether strongly. I believe story. that
1: story. I've never told that's that. That's a story. great,
0: that's a great
1: story. And I'm <laughs> so grateful for it. I mean, I'd rather have a parent who could give me that advice, but if you can't get it, put it out into the universe and see what comes back, I guess. Well, yeah. I'm going to tell yeah, that story I've, someday.
0: <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. I don't think I've ever sat and gotten an answer like that, that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe if I had been doing homework for life and writing them down. I, would. I wasn't
1: doing homework for life back then, though. I was, you know, I was just a college student. You know, I think sometimes when we are stuck and alone, we just find the answers we need because there's no other option. Getting quiet, too, and yeah. contemplating, you know, contemplative. Right. Tom Hanks gets off that island and cast away, right? It takes him a long time, but he finally figures it out. Like, eventually it comes to him. I think that's sort of... Hopefully it doesn't take us four years on a desert island to figure out how to get home. But I think that's what happens is we're, when we're alone, we just have to rely on the wisdom that sort of exists in the world and in ourselves. And I think that's what I did that day.
0: Matt, let me ask you this. If you had your own Netflix
1: special, what would it be? <laughs> that's a good question. I'm sort of, I was working on one with a buddy for a little bit. What I think I would like to do, and this is what my buddy and I were going to do is I want to model the idea that it's okay not to know stuff and that it's okay to get stuff wrong. So what we were going to do, me and my buddy were there's going to be a big wheel full of topics that we know nothing about. We spin the wheel every week, whatever the wheel lands on, that's what we're going to try to learn about. And so, I don't know if it said, um, oh, you know what? My son was talking about wormholes this morning and I don't really understand wormholes. That would be one of the topics, right? So I would have to go out and figure out everything I can learn about wormholes by doing a bunch of funny things and trying experiments and reading and doing that's what it would be filmed. And eventually I would come to the point where I am like, uh, now I know about wormholes and then they would bring in a wormhole expert to tell me if I was right or wrong. I like the idea of showing people that you can know nothing You can go find out stuff about it. And then you can find out that you're wrong. Because I think what happens in the world is people don't know anything. And then they listen to Ted Cruz and then they think they know everything. And then they refuse to hear that they're wrong. And so I want to model the like idea of not knowing, thinking you're knowing and discovering, you know, nothing. That's what I want people to see as being okay to admit to. I'm always impressed when someone tells me they don't know something, Uh, you know, something that happened to my wife once, and I just love it so much. She was speaking to Dan Kennedy, who is used to be the host of the moths podcast. He's an author. He's a great storyteller. I know him through the moth. And one night we were in the green room together and he was talking to my wife and he said a word and Alicia said, I don't know what that word means. And Dan said, God, I don't know. The last time I was in the presence of someone confident enough to say, I don't know the meaning of that word. Could you tell me? He said, I can't imagine being so comfortable with myself that I could tell another human being that I didn't understand the word that they just spoke. And I thought like, that's right. Like the fact that Alicia stopped him mid-sentence and said, what does that mean? That's more impressive than knowing what it means. I love it when someone says, I don't actually know what you're talking about. Can you explain it to me? I'm so impressed when people admit to their ignorance because you can't know everything.
0: No, no one can. Even the uh, smartest person in the world, right? Who, or right. the person that thinks they're the smartest person in the world. Yes. If you were um, able to give your 18-year-old self
1: three pieces of advice, what, what would they be? Three, piece of, uh, three pieces of advice. Well, the first one would be to get started sooner. You know, I do think that that advice about making time, I don't think I took it early enough. You know, I lived in fear when I was 18 because I was always on the edge of hunger and homelessness. And I thought that that would be devastating. And it, I mean, it is. I was hungry and homeless and it was not great, but I knew I had like stuff inside me. You know, I knew I was capable of things that I just wasn't doing because of that fear. So I would tell myself like the fear's fine you know, food and shelter are important, but go do some stuff. Like, don't wait, don't delay. So I would tell myself to get off my butt as quickly as possible. That would be um, one thing. I think I would tell myself that like, when you're 18 to 24, for me, when I wasn't even in college and I was still poor, like go drive around a lot more than you did. You know, I, we drove to like Florida a lot from Massachusetts and my buddy and I drove to Ohio to the football hall of fame. But I'm thinking now, like, why wasn't I just driving all over the country back then? You know, why didn't I go see like everything that I felt like I should have taken advantage of that a little more than I could have at that time. You know, I I didn't sort of venture out into the world like I should have.
0: How would you uh, have made money if you were on the road?
1: Well, right, Because you need you need to fill the gas tank, too. You do. You do. I just feel like I felt like all of that was harder than it probably was. You know, I mean, part of the problem was I had no future in my mind. I had no future. I guess the biggest piece of advice I would tell myself is like you're 18. There is nothing set in stone, dude. You know, you're 20. There's nothing set in stone. When I was 20 and I was living on my own, I had sort of resigned myself to the fact that I guess I'm going to manage restaurants. I'm really good at it. Like I can really squeeze profit out of restaurants. And the people I work with, they were sort of, they were all like me. They were all kind of poor and kind of struggling. So we connected and I got, I was able to really motivate workers. And, you know, my shifts were always like 100%. If Matt's working, I'm going to go to work that day. I was really good at it. And so I figured, I guess I, this is what I'm going to do. And rather than resigning yourself to something that like you're good at, but you don't really love, I would have said to myself, like, this is not forever, dude. Like wipe that idea out of your brain. And, you know, I was sort of like 20, but going on 45 for a while. You know, I was like 20 watching kids come through my drive through on a Saturday, like six kids in a car, buying sodas and going to the beach. And I was like, you know, their age by acting like a 45 year old man worrying about profit and loss statements and labor costs and things like that and you know I needed to do it at the time but I don't think I needed to do it to that degree I could have just gotten another job and had a little more freedom and maybe a little less money but you know I would have been able to experience the world in a way I wasn't experiencing at the time so it's something
0: think- I know I know that I don't know I know that I'd like to own a vegan restaurant but I also know that I don't want to work 16-hour days and I don't want to be in there sweating, you know, over the payroll and over the kitchen and what's going You know, I just don't want to deal with all of that stuff. I just want to be the name on it and the owner. <laughs> and I know that I know nothing about restaurants. So that's mm-hmm. why I do not invest in buying a small restaurant. Well, because I sounds- know absolutely nothing about owning a restaurant.
1: Yeah. It sounds like, you know, there's people who tell me they want to be writers. But really what they tell me is they want to have written. They don't want to actually sit down for 180 hours, you know, bleeding on the page to write a novel. What they really want is to sit in a Starbucks with a cappuccino and a laptop and smooth jazz. They like the thought of that. And they think that's what writing is. And then they'll do that for a while without the writing part. And eventually they'll have a book. So you really want to be like, you want to be able to walk into your restaurant. It's got your name on it. Everybody knows you, shaking hands. How's your food tonight? All of that. But all the blood that needs to be poured in order to get that done. is Yeah,
0: I I know that I don't want to sweat that
1: blood. Yeah, Um, don't don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So don't do that.
0: That's why why I will not invest in a restaurant. But it would be nice to have a a restaurant. Let's say say that's my restaurant. Have you ever considered... Buying a restaurant or owning a restaurant? No.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. I know how hard it is. I know Uh how thin the profits are. I know the hours that are required. My wife and I, our dream is to own a bookstore. That is more than just a bookstore, though. When I go into bookstores, I'm always appalled with the loss of profits that they have, uh, the opportunities they don't exploit. So we would it's have tough book- to
0: compete against Amazon. So you have to have a unique angle.
1: Right, exactly. So we'd have a bookstore, but it would have a performance space and it would have workshop classrooms where I could bring in, like, you know, oh, you know how to play the ukulele? Well, I've got a workshop space. Would you like to have a class here? I'll take. 20% of the cut and you can have this space, you know? So it would be a place where you get books for sure. You buy those books, but like a lot of other things are happening, like this community gathering place for learning and performing and getting to know people, that kind of a thing. That's our dream.
0: That sounds pretty cool. I'd show up. Uh, where do you hold your workshops now uh, pre-COVID?
1: Uh, Pre-COVID, I have partnerships with places like the Connecticut Historical Society so, uh, you know, I go in and um, they take a portion of my proceeds and in return for my, you know, using their space. It's often places that want me to come in. So like the Historical Society, I think that's where we met. I think you came to the Historical is, Society. Yep. They want that because they want to be they want to be in the business of telling stories. They want to be in the business of bringing new faces into their building so that, you know, you poke around during lunch a little bit, you discover that this is a place you might want to spend a little more time in. So I find places that want to be in the business of storytelling and in the business of bringing the kinds of people who are interested in that, that work into their space. So there's plenty of places that I can go to and I just find the partners who are the easiest to work with.
0: Yeah. That's a pretty cool spot. And that's kind of what I envisioned about you and Alicia's spot, you know, like a space similar to that, you know, it was, it almost felt like a library slash museum.
1: Yeah. It sort of is. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a good place. Yeah. And, you know, you didn't see the other side of that building, which is where we perform. Actually, they have a huge room with tavern signs, ancient tavern signs all over the walls. And, you know, that's always good, too, when we can um, when we do that kind of a partnership, too, you know, to have performance spaces.
0: When um, performances come back, I'd love to come to one. So uh, definitely let me know. I will. Um, I'd love to have
1: you. <laughs> I can't wait. How are you growing? Like what's your system of personal growth? I find the thing that I'm frightened of, and that's the thing I do next. So that's why I'm doing stand up now, where I was before COVID. I never wanted to do stand up. I thought it sounded terrible and uh, it sounded really scary. So I said, I guess that's the next thing that I have to do. So I'm always trying to push myself into an area that sounds hard or frightening. I'm learning the piano right now. You know, I've always sort of like, I've wanted to play the piano, but not wanted to learn to play the piano. I've been like, you know, you and your vegan restaurant. Uh, so it's hard, you know, I've played many musical instruments over my life. I have a good foundation in music. I can read music, all of that, but the piano I've watched people play and just thought all the time, like, God, I wish I could do that. But that looks like hundreds of hours of work to get to that point. And now I've decided that sounded really hard. So I guess that's what I have to do next. So I'm always looking for the hard, the scary thing. And then anytime someone says, Hey, do you want to, I desperately try to say yes. You know, it's very rare that someone has said, hey, do you want it? And I don't at least give it a chance. And almost every time that I say yes, I end up happy that I said yes. Honestly, I think the only thing I ever outright said no to was there's a naked storytelling show in Boston where storytellers are naked. And they've asked me more than once, will you tell a story naked? And I don't know if it's true or not, but I say it's I because can't. of
0: your looks. It's not because you're such a great storyteller. It's because of your looks.
1: Right. I wish. I tell them, <laughs> I, tell them I can't because I'm an elementary school teacher. Uh-huh. I just don't think an elementary school teacher should be sort of naked in public telling a story. No. But I think it might also be, I just don't think I can do it. I just don't. That's, gonna,
0: that's probably going to backfire in
1: some, in some way. <laughs> yeah. But once I'm not an elementary school teacher, then I would be able to do it. I still don't think I'd do it.
0: <laughs> do you have an idea of how many more years you're going to teach? Uh, elementary school?
1: Yeah. You know, my business people and even my wife tell me to stop now because I could just be more profitable doing other things, but I love the kids. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe five years, that's sort of a good pension year. You know, you get to, I get to that year and then I can start to like make sense pension wise and maybe transition fully into something else. But I love the kids. I mean, my school is five minutes from my house. I walk in the door at 8.15. I walk out of the door at 3.45. I've been doing it long enough. I've been in the same classroom for 19 years. Like I've got my situation down, you know? I never have problems with behavior. I get along with the kids, the parents like me. It's just too easy not to do because I love it. What's
0: a uh, typical routine, your daily routine? So give me your work day and then give me your
1: days off. Sure. Well, my day starts around 4.30 every day.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> 4 30.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I've always been an early riser. So I get up at 4 30. By five o'clock, I'm writing. You know, I write from about five to 630, 630, 7 o'clock. My kids eventually come down sometime between six thirty and seven. I eat breakfast and hang out with them for a while. I tease them. I tickle them, get them ready for school. I walk out the door at about seven thirty every day and then I walk into the school before eight o'clock I pick up an egg McMuffin on the way to school and then I teach I teach you know all day if I don't have anything to correct or plan during lunch I'm writing during lunch I sit down mm. and write you know I do a lot of fun things with my kids by 3 20 they're out the door by 3 45 on most days I'm out the door before COVID I'd be at the gym now I come home and uh, fight with Nordic Track because my bike my exercise bike is not working, so I might go for a cold bike ride. Lately, okay. I've been doing nothing except extra push-ups and sit-ups, and I put on 11 pounds, killing me. But typically, after school, I'd go work out somehow, exercise for a little bit, come home. We have a child care person at the house with the kids. She picks them up every day, brings them home, helps them with homework, so I take over for her. My wife or I make dinner. Lately, I make more dinners than she does because I've learned to cook in the pandemic, which is amazing. So I cook dinner. We all eat. Uh, Lately, we've watched an episode of The Simpsons because my son has fallen in love with The Simpsons. So we're watching all 642 episodes in order. So we'll sit down as a family, watch an episode of The Simpsons. Kids get in their pajamas. I read Harry Potter to them. We're in book three right now. What time are they going to bed at? Uh, About eight o'clock. Yeah. Okay. And then
0: uh, what are you doing after they go to bed?
1: Uh, It varies. My wife and I watch... We probably watch like three hours of TV a week. I would say three nights a week we sit down, maybe before We sit down and we watch an hour of TV. Well, We always watch one show at a time. We're watching an hour of it at a time until we finish that show. Then we move on to the next show. So, you know, three or four nights a week, we'll sit down for an hour and watch TV. But before that, we're always sort of working. She might be playing the ukulele. I might be working on a book. I might be, you know, working with clients. I work with a lot of clients from eight to nine uh, in the evenings. So from 8 to 9, I'm popping in on Zoom meetings with clients and things like that. You know, but sometime around 9, 30 to 10 o'clock, we look at each other and I say, you want to watch something? And if she's up for it, we go and we sit and we watch something till 10 and I'm in bed by 11.
0: So you are only sleeping five and a half hours?
1: Yeah, five and a half hours. But I do it well. People don't take their sleep seriously. No, you don't take it. Trust me. Let's do a little sleep inventory, okay? Do you watch television while you're in bed?
0: We do similar to what you guys do. We watch for a little bit and then we say, okay, it's time to shut it down. We shut but, it down usually around 10 o'clock.
1: But are you in bed when you're watching the TV? We are usually. Okay. Yes. Well, that's terrible. You've already ruined your sleep cycle. Uh, do you go to sleep the same time every night? I can't because I work shifts. Oh, right. Okay. So you're screwed in that regard too. So <laughs> so that's all for 2. You're already in a lot of trouble. Do you use white noise when you sleep?
0: I do not. I use a sleep story podcast actually.
1: Yeah. That's no good too. So like, there's a lot of things that you're sort of doing terrible in terms of your sleep. People always ask me like, how do you only sleep six hours a night? I say, well, you know, my wife will tell you she sleeps eight hours a night, but that's nonsense because she gets in bed and she stares at her phone. I'm already asleep. She wakes up in the morning. Oh, do you use the snooze alarm? Do you ever snooze, like hit the alarm and then hit the alarm again?
0: No. A lot of times I'll wake up prior to the alarm. Like when I'm on, I'm I'm on days this week. So I I work nine to fives. Yeah, I'll wake up at four 45, use the bathroom. And then yeah. I say, okay, I'm awake. And I go hit the gym by about five 36. That's so good. when I'm on days, I'm on a great schedule. Yeah. When I'm on nights, I'm on a terrible schedule. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, you can't, your, your shifts are, are unfortunate for you. They just, they're going to ruin you. Oh. Um, <laughs> but what I tell people is like, if I'm sleeping five or six hours a night, I'm asleep for five or six hours. I fall asleep within 30 seconds. I don't wake up with an alarm most of the time. I usually just open my eyes, jump out of bed. Most people are not doing any of these things. They're watching TV in bed. And weirdly, they count that as being in bed sometimes, which doesn't even count. But it also disturbs your sleep cycle. So when I'm sleeping, I drop into REM sleep faster than most people. I also meditate. So I'm able to clear my mind instantly, which is why I can fall asleep in 30 seconds. I actually fell asleep in front of my class the other day on a dare the school psychologist was in the room and I was talking about meditating and she doesn't. And I said, it's really powerful. I said, actually, I could lay down on this hard floor and be asleep in 30 seconds. And she's like, no, you couldn't. <laughs> I laid down in front of 19 kids and 30 seconds later, I was legit asleep. And she was like, you just dropped away. I said, you can train yourself to do it. When do so you that, find
0: time to meditate?
1: I Oh, I meditate every morning. When I said I get up at four thirty, but I start writing around five, get up Mm at four 30. My clothes are already laid out. I showered the night before. So I get up, put my clothes on, feed the cats while the cats are eating. I sit on my couch and I meditate and I meditate until the cats bother me, which is they finish eating. And eventually they find me on the couch. They jump on me and they ruin it, but that's okay. Over the years, I've trained myself to meditate so I can just leave. I just mentally leave meetings. I can, I just, I'm out like that, but because of it, my six hours of sleep or my five hours of sleep, whatever it ends up being it's tight. It is like solid, excellent sleep. I'm in REM quickly. I don't wake up in the middle of the night because the white noise machine is a trigger to my brain to stay asleep. And it allows all the sounds that might wake you up in the middle of the night to go away. So I just stay asleep all night. I instantly wake up without the alarm most of the time, which is the best way to wake up because that means your body's naturally increasing the levels of chemicals to wake you up. And then I never snooze, never hit that snooze button. You just jump out of bed and I'm ready to go. Yeah. So, I'm very anti snooze button too. It's really bad for you. People are groggy during the day oftentimes because they hit the snooze button because they, they launch their body into a second sleep cycle and then they interrupt it and they feel groggy for the rest of the day. All It's all science. This is not stuff I discovered or invented. I just decided if I'm going to have to sleep, I want to do as little of it as possible. And I want to do it as well as possible. And so I researched sleep and figured out all the ways to do it. So Um, I don't watch TV in bed. I don't look at my phone in bed. All of those things we should not do. I don't do.
0: So when do you shut the phone down?
1: Uh, Before I get into bed. Yeah. but I mean, I'm not really looking at it. Like, you know, if my buddy texts me while I'm watching TV at 1030 at night, I'll look at the text, but I'm not a person who's on the phone scrolling either. You know, I don't scroll through social media. I don't doom scroll. You know, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook. People think I'm on Facebook. Really? I go on Facebook. I post my stuff and then I go away, you know? That's so like I'm not seeing anyone else's <laughs> stuff. They're just seeing yeah. my stuff. You know, I go on yeah. Twitter and I've carefully cultivated the people I follow and I get my news there.
0: So you just said something really important there that I want everybody to catch. You're a creator, not a consumer. You create, well, you put it out there and then you shut it down.
1: Yes. Now I certainly consume things like I'll watch a good TV show. I watch yeah. a movie. I read a book, but yeah. Oh, with social media. It is a carefully curated, I engage as little as possible, nobody needs it kind of situation. Now, I value Twitter enormously because it is a great news source if you carefully cultivate who you're following. So, you know, I'm getting my COVID news from Scott Gottlieb. So I know, like, trusted source. I like the guy a lot. He's good, you know? So LinkedIn,
0: like- LinkedIn, also, you can make some incredible connections, too
1: yeah LinkedIn, same place where I drop my stuff and walk away. <laughs> so I just don't need to be in it. I don't need yeah. to see other people's lives in Facebook. It's just not necessary for me
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I hate, so I, I actually it. hate scrolling through Facebook. I do very similar I drop in. I am somewhat addicted to Instagram. I do like yeah especially especially when I'm at work. <laughs> yeah. you know if, it, if it's boring, if it's quiet and the phone's not ringing, I'll be scrolling through
1: Instagram. Same place there. I drop a picture and then I walk away.
0: So I just want to ask you, what's your next project that you're working on? Are you promoting anything right now?
1: Well, I'm always working on lots of projects. I think people should do that. I think working on one is crazy. So, you know, I have, um, I have a novel I'm working on. I have another storytelling book that I'm working on. It's basically done. I have a book on productivity because the question I get asked the most is how do you do all that you do? and so the book is the answer to that part there's a whole sleep chapter on sleep actually on making sure that you're sleeping effectively so you can recapture time
0: the biggest so, thing with productivity for me is is the calendar and scheduling things what's like the biggest thing with productivity for you it's it's obviously sleep and you're obviously very hard on your schedule too
1: for me it's the idea that people don't actually value time properly you know i asked my students the other day would you rather have more time or more money every kid wanted more money and i thought you're all stupid right you should want more time right you can always get money you can't get time i just want people waste time you know they waste like little bits of time you know they're waiting for five minutes you know my wife is getting ready to go out i've got five minutes how am i going to use my five minutes most people are going to scroll through instagram right and for me i'm going to say i'm going to go write 10 good sentences I say, I'm going to go wrestle with my son for five minutes. You know, I say, I am going to go clean out the garage for five minutes. I'm not going to get the whole job done, but I'm going to get, I'm going to hit it for five minutes before it's time for us to leave. I value every minute. Every minute needs to be treasured because there will come a day when you will wish you had one more and you will not have one more. And you'll think about all the minutes that you could have used and instead you scrolled or you know, did nothing. I just watched people like stand around and knew nothing, which is nuts to me. So the most important thing in terms of productivity is recognizing the value of your time, whether it's five minutes or five hours, how are you going to spend that time? Mm, That was huge. Thank you.
0: That was a gem. I want to give you a gem real quick. Uh, All three of my sons wrestled from kindergarten all the way up. And I would highly recommend, even if it's just one season, putting Charlie in wrestling because it gives them confidence. And it's an individual sport, you know, it's like, it's all on you, you know, whether or not you put in the effort and it teaches them mental toughness. There's so many lessons in wrestling. I could go on and on and on about wrestling, (laughs) but if you don't put them in wrestling,
1: then put them in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.
0: Oh, I got a buddy who
1: does that. I have somebody who, I know somebody who does that. Yeah.
0: Because the the lessons are very similar, but my rapid fire, my final five questions, um, What does being a hero mean to you? What's your
1: definition of a hero? Being a hero is just deciding that you are not the most important person in the world and you're going to make other people more important than yourself.
0: I love it. Uh, When stress is at its highest and you're at your lowest, how do you save yourself? How do you be a hero to you?
1: Uh, It's either spend time with my kids or do something that I'm proud of. One of those two things. I'm either going to write great sentences or play with my kids. Okay, that's awesome. How do you show love to yourself? It's funny. I guess I just keep reminding myself about that time thing so that if I have a book that's due and an editor who's yelling at me, but my son says, hey, you want to go fight with me for five minutes or watch The Simpsons? I always say yes to the kids. I always say yes to my wife first. Everything else comes second. So That's awesome. Um,
0: And you also told me something really incredible the last time that we spoke that I, we have to get in there. You keep a file of compliments. I actually started to do that.
1: Yeah, I do. What does it do for you? Well, if I'm down for whatever reason, if I just need to pick me up in Evernote, I've got something called compliments. And over the years, every time someone emails me or writes to me and, or even says a compliment to me, I add it to the file. And then when I need something, when I just need like a little bit of a boost, I open the Evernote file and I just scroll it till it stops sort of. And then I'm returned to a moment where someone appreciated me in a significant way. And that reminds me that I am appreciated in the world. I started
0: doing that since the last time that we spoke and, and Teresa loved it too.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, um, we let those things go, you know, we we forget the nice things people say to us. So I refuse to forget them.
0: What's your power today. What's your strength, your best ability. Wow. What's my best ability. I'll tell you what I think your best ability. is. Okay. It's goes back to your Netflix special your ability to learn and your ability to teach. I think, like, your ability to learn something and then go ahead and teach it. I think if other people could learn that skill from you, I think they would be miles ahead of where. So, I have a framework. It's called Learn, Implement, and Teach. So, uh, that's how you get your business lit. You learn, you implement, and then you teach something. And I think that's one of your greatest abilities and your greatest skills. What do you think is your greatest ability?
1: Well, I guess. I mean, it's that's a hard thing to say. I, guess I know, you're not, a, you're not a
0: braggadocious person. <laughs> no,
1: I mean, I guess it's teaching because it comes so easy to me in a lot of ways. You know, I watch my colleagues and, you know, they, they work so hard and I'm just lucky that it just, uh, I'm able to connect with kids and with people very quickly, you know, in meaningful ways. And once you get someone connected with you and they like you and they're having fun, you can almost teach them anything. So for some reason, I understand how to teach. Uh, you're an awesome inherently. teacher, Matt. Thank you.
0: And uh, just for fun, if you had yep. a super comic ability, um, superpower, what would yeah, it be?
1: There's only one that you're allowed to really choose if you're an ethical person. It's you should uh, choose to see the future because you can forego doom and destruction from people. Anything else that you choose is selfish. Even if it's like, I'll be Superman and I'll save the world. No, 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 no. You should create a world where it doesn't need to be saving. I should be able to go, hey, there's a tidal wave coming at Fukushima. Shut down the nuclear power plant, right? Don't let that thing overheat and explode and create all of that disaster. So I think the only morally ethical choice of a superpower is to see the future so that you can prevent disaster.
0: They would want to lock you away and uh, te- you know run tests on you, and I'm working and, on a... And other governments would want to
1: steal you. I know. You know like well, you, I'm working you'd be I'm...
0: constant. you being constant danger.
1: Well, I'm working on a book about it. Actually, I told Lisha this might be my new novel idea. You'd have to cultivate a situation where you can communicate it to people without letting anyone know who you are. And you'd have to become reliable enough that, when that whenever it was arrived, people would believe like, oh my God, another egg arrived. We have to listen to the egg because the last egg predicted it correctly. So I think the book would be like cultivating a relationship with a reporter, but not letting the reporter ever know who you are.
0: Matt, you know? I want to respect your time. And I want to say thank you very <laughs> much because you got to go. So I just want to ask if uh, people want to reach out
1: to you and get in touch, how should they find you? They can go to MatthewDix.com or they can uh, hear our podcast, Speak Up Storytelling, wherever you get podcasts. But if you go to MatthewDix.com, you can find everything right there.
0: Thank you very much,
1: brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Talk to you later.
0: All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message... Hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at David Leith, the number one. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.